gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are just making enormous headway going through uh, uh, conversations with authors I like about books I want to talk about. Um, and we now have a first time guest here on the Remnant, um, probably the most recognizable voice of someone who hasn't been on this podcast before. Um, you may have heard me talk to him from time to time because there was a period there where I was the house goy at NPR for a while. And, um, I was on quite a bit, particularly morning edition. And I was usually talking to Steve Insky and Steve is the host of morning edition and up first on NPR. He's the author of four books. The most recent of which is differ. We must how Lincoln succeeded in a divided American. Dr. Insky, welcome to the remnant. Thank you. You said you were the house boy at NPR. Was that the phrase you used, sir? That was the phrase I used. Are you not still? Because you... I, I haven't been on... Okay. We got to get you back on. I haven't been on that. The, the frequency has died down. I think I'm still liked by you guys and all that kind of stuff. Oh, but. oh you're totally liked and admired, without a doubt. And uh, I'm going to like send a note to the executive producer as soon as we get off this, this podcast to uh, see what we can do about it. Oh, no, no, no. There's no need for that. There's no need for that. I mean... Er, 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 Every time, you know, every time I'm on NPR first thing in the morning, uh, William F. Buckley does one full rotation in the grave. So, you know, I, so uh, longstanding tradition on this podcast is when I have, because when I'm on a book tour, the question I always want to get asked, um, and so rarely am, um, is the question I figure I should, in the spirit of generosity, ask the author when they're on. So what's your book about? Oh, thank you for asking. What an interesting and original <laughs> question. I appreciate that. It's about Abraham Lincoln, but I try to take a particular approach to it. I attempt here to tell Abraham Lincoln's life story through 16 meetings with people who disagreed with him, people who differed with him in some way, different background, different gender, different race, but above all, a difference of opinion, a disagreement of some kind. And in these meetings, each person is trying to get something, politically or otherwise. And uh, Lincoln is trying to get something as well. And, and you find out how that turns out, um, which I would like to think, uh, I hope, aspire for it to be a way to look at Lincoln's very famous life that illuminates some lesser corners of it or lesser known corners of it. And also relates to now, because as you've pointed out, I'm a journalist. I have a day show, a morning show. Uh, we talk about the news all the time. We try to understand the news. And one of the ways that I do that is by reaching back into history. And I felt that understanding how Lincoln dealt with division would be relevant. to me. So as you may recall, my mom was a literary agent, um, among other yes. things. And she had a theory. She always wanted to publish a book because books about Lincoln sold, books about Nazis sold, books about yes. golf sold, and books about dogs sold. And so she wanted to publish a book with Lincoln on the cover in an SS uniform, teeing off on a poodle. <laughs> and she had this theory that it checked every box, every possible constituency would buy it, but it misses something in when you actually, it, it's why things work on paper don't work necessarily yeah. work in reality. Like what's the plot exactly of that, that book? That's the thing that you'd have to figure out. Who are you rooting for? Right? You know, um, it's a problem. Poodle. I'm for the poodle there. <laughs> um, so uh, before we get into the, these different lives and these different encounters, um, this is simultaneously a dumb question and I think an interesting one. And since it's my podcast, I have no inhibitions about it. What, is the, what do you think is the abiding fascination with Lincoln? Uh, this is not a dumb question, although I'm now compelled to like do an interjection. I once was at a presentation at Carnegie Mellon University to a bunch of high school students, including uh, one of my own kids who's going to go there for like a summer program and the vice president of something, something at the university got up in front of them. And he said, you know, that phrase, there are no dumb questions. In fact, he said, there are dumb questions. Please <laughs> ask informed questions here. But I don't totally agree with that. That's a perfectly fine question. The abiding fascination with Lincoln has to do with 
I mean, the gigantic events that he was involved with, of course, the Civil War and the end of slavery, it touches the identity of the United States uh, in terms of race, in terms of geography, in terms of just about everything else. And it's also his personal story as someone who was born in Kentucky. We would think of him as being born in poverty. I suppose at that time, in the early 1800s, when the vast majority of people would be poor, we would actually say he was born in ordinary circumstances, very modest circumstances. He then spent most of his youth in uh, Indiana, my home state, uh, dealing with a variety of tragedies and struggles. When he was seven years old, they uprooted themselves. The family lost the farm through a title dispute. They moved to the Indiana frontier, what was then the frontier. His father hands him an ax and says, start helping me to cut down trees. He spends the next 15 or 16 years of his life mostly doing manual labor. His mother dies before he is 10. He has less than one year of formal education, and yet he teaches himself largely to read. He teaches himself to write and write well. He teaches himself good handwriting and ends up writing letters for other people who are illiterate, which I discovered turned out to be one of the ways that he was studying people. He's constantly absorbing information about people and how they think and how they're, they're motivated. And one of the things he was doing was like absorbing the personal letters of other people who needed his help with his handwriting. So this is a guy who is starting at the very bottom, but studies law, ends up becoming a lawyer, and then ends up becoming president of the United States. It's an incredible story that resonates with what we would like to believe about America, whether or not it's always true. It's a kind of confirmation story of the greatness of America and the greatness of democracy and of the relative equality of America that anybody can grow up to be president. It turns out that, that arguably the greatest president was somebody who started on the absolute bottom, and that's an irresistible story. He is a more appealing figure than almost any other president. And all of those things, I think, combine to make him someone that people just can't get enough. I am not going to sit here and have you cast invidious implied aspersions on James Polk like this. Um, <laughs> he was much more fun. No, I'm kidding. He's an important president, without a doubt. We can talk about it. But he's more than any other president, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, I like the formulation that it, it, where you say it's it tells us something about what America what we want America is even if it doesn't always live up to it another way of putting that is he shows the possibility there's no promises yes. that you know not everybody can grow up to be president but it's possible and there's a difference in what America stands for people give short shrift to the to the hope that comes with possibility, right? I mean, like if you were a serf, unless you're Conan who becomes king by his own hand, right? If you're a serf in Europe, there's no chance of you becoming an aristocrat or a king or those avenues were defi definitively closed. And there's something about the American story that at least implies possibility. Obviously there are still caveats about race and, and, and all that. But um, I think that that's a good way of thinking about it. Why don't you sort of start with, uh, his encounter with uh, Frederick Douglass. And what does that tell you about the man and his times? I, I love this story. Uh, Douglass was a guy, by the way, who said, I think Lincoln related to me because, like me, he grew up in humble circumstances. Um, that was, of course, a little generous of Douglass since Douglass grew up in even worse circumstances, enslaved, uh, and had to result to various strategies to teach himself how to read and to find people who would help him learn to read and, and, and to write, but escaped from slavery and became a great anti-slavery orator and writer. Um, before I go on with this encounter between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, I feel the need to define some terms, maybe not for your uh, extremely erudite podcast audience, but I realize there's a bit of confusion that many, many people have. Frederick Douglass is not the guy from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. There's a different guy, Stephen A. Douglas, who was a United States senator who debated Lincoln in those debates. Frederick Douglas is a different person. Um, Douglas, by the time uh, Lincoln uh, was an adult, uh, they were not too far apart in age. Douglas was a little bit younger. Um, by the time Lincoln was an adult, Douglas was, had, had, had a, or was a politician, I should say. Douglas had escaped from slavery and was writing books was giving speeches, 
was sometimes being chased by mobs off stage and was running a newspaper, which he used uh, to comment on events and to bring uh, an abolitionist view and a black point of view to politics. He became involved in, in politics, um, which not all abolitionists did before the Civil War. Some of them found the United States so corrupted by slavery they didn't even want to vote. They didn't want anything to do with the Constitution. They burned copies of the Constitution. Douglas began that way, but changed his mind, got involved in politics, and then decided eventually to support this new party, the Republican Party, which was an anti-slavery party that was not nearly radical enough for Douglas, but he felt that they were the ones with the best chance to win. And being pragmatic as Lincoln was, he supported the Republican Party. And when the Civil War came, when Lincoln was elected as the first Republican president, and when the South began the war in defense of slavery, Douglas became a kind of member of the loyal opposition. He's playing like two incredible roles, which I think a lot of activists often have to do. There's an outside game where he is constantly criticizing Lincoln for not going fast enough. From the first minute of the war, Douglas understands that a way to win this war is by freeing the slaves, the enslaved laborers from the South, which will take away their labor and create soldiers for the Union Army. Lincoln took a year and a half to get around to that, and Douglas is constantly criticizing him in public for being slow, for being a laggard. He even uses the phrase Negro hatred. He says that Lincoln represents Negro hatred. But at the same time, he's kind of playing an inside game. When the Emancipation Proclamation finally came in early 1863, Douglas became an army recruiter, helped to recruit soldiers, um, but then became frustrated again because he promised these black soldiers they would get equal treatment and they weren't getting equal pay or equal promotions or anything else. And he went to the White House to protest. Um, there are many things that are incredible about this meeting, one of them being that it happened at all. Um, Douglas came in the company of an important senator, so he had somebody to vouch for him. But he came into Lincoln's anteroom. This was a time when if you wanted to see the president, you couldn't send an email, you couldn't call ahead. Uh, you would show up and wait on him. And the anteroom is full of people, and there's so many people there, according to Douglas's account, that they spilled out of the anteroom across the hall and down the stairs. Lincoln's office being on the second floor of the White House at, uh, at that time. Uh, and there's a ceremonial staircase that goes down to the lobby. So you can just picture people going all the way down the stairs. And they're all white, as Douglas recalled. And he was a black man who had publicly lambasted the president for years. Um, and yet within two minutes of him sending in his card, someone says, Mr. Douglas, you're next. And he gets in to see Lincoln who uh, admitted to some of the charges against him. He said, I've been slow to uh, provide equality to black soldiers. Uh, I will admit that I may have been slow for lots of things, but I'm a politician and I have to build political support for things. And I'm dealing with a lot of white people in the government who resist anything that approaches equality for black men. And so I'm doing everything I can step by step. And I'm working on it. And in fact, within a year uh, or less, Congress provided and Lincoln signed equal pay for black soldiers, a bill, a law that would make that the law of the land. Um, and they were uh, promoting black men into officers' positions and so forth. So they had, I think, a constructive discussion. And they were two uh, men that we think of as principled, which they were, standing for the highest American ideals but they were also pragmatic, or just to use a simpler word, they were practical. They were asking what is politically possible at this time. Douglas decided, unlike other abolitionists in the 1850s, that the way to strike the strongest blow against slavery was to support this party that he did not fully agree with. Lincoln understood again and again and again that while he personally opposed slavery all his life, there was only a certain amount that he could do at any given time, and he would try to accomplish that thing and had a kind of philosophy of leaving the rest for later. His philosophy, he talked about, of course, often the Declaration of Independence and its promise that all men are created equal. And in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates against the other Douglas, he uh, has a line in which he says, um, this was not perfectly attained then. 
It's not perfectly attained now. It is never perfectly attained, but it can be approximated in ways that add to the happiness and well-being of people of all colors everywhere. And he's saying that we do the best we can, and then we have another election and we fight over things some more because that's what a republic is. I just had this, I had this great conversation with my friend uh, Jay Cost, who's got a new book out on the Constitution, and, um, and we're talking about, um, in my rarefied, nerdy world, there's this obsession among conservative intellectuals about the difference between a republic and a democracy. And you often hear jerks, I shouldn't say jerks, you often hear people get all haughty and finger waggy and say, this isn't a democracy, it's a republic. And I get what they're trying to say, but it's basically a dog whistle to a certain crowd kind of thing. And anyway, it just made me think, what made me think about this was that uh, Jay agrees with me that he kind of grimaces when they when he hears that when if you're trying to understand what a, the, the difference between democracy and republic is you know when lincoln says government of by and for the people right of and by is democracy for is republic and because republicanism implies a certain amount of you know the political scientists call it trustee representation or delegate representation delegate just says you're a remote control car of your voters and delegate says, no, you're being sent to provide your judgment or what Edmund Burke would say, you know, your wisdom and all that kind of stuff. And the great thing about Lincoln is, is that he kind of understood the balance that was really two thirds of one and one third of the other. But you needed that other one about you can only focus on what is possible um, while also keeping an eye on the direction the ideal that you're trying to get towards. Yes. No, I think that's a, that's a great way to think of it. I ended up using uh, the words a little bit interchangeably when I was writing. Conscious of that division that you, uh, that, that you describe, I think the word republic was more commonly used in his time, but it was a time of democracy and of spreading democracy. Uh, within Lincoln's lifetime, the number of people who were entitled to vote drastically expanded. Property requirements were removed for white men. Um, there were a limited number of black men and others who could also, who could also vote. And of course, the Civil War drastically expanded that again, at least for a minute. Um, so it was very much a democratic time. And you, you hit on a great insight. Um, a, a, I mean, I, I think a wise elected official is not quite doing entirely either of those models you described, right? Like if the elected official is just like, well, that's what my voters want. Um, what are you there for? What's the point of that? But if you get too far ahead of the voters, you lose them. Um, I mean, there's a, uh, I, I, I uh, interviewed John Boehner a few times over the years, and there is a line that John Boehner told me that I ended up putting in this book. Um, and it's a line where he says, a leader with no followers is just a man out taking a walk. <laughs> That's good. So, and, and, you know, it was, and, and, you know, you can see if you're speaker of the house, I mean, just, just to name any, I don't know, recent speaker of the house, uh, you may, uh, you may say to yourself, well, that's just my excuse for inaction. Um, but it's also kind of, kind of, kind of true. Like you can only accomplish so much unless you have a big coalition of people of different points of view and different backgrounds and different ideas and you somehow get them at least partly on the same page. And that's a phenomenal challenge. And that was the thing that Lincoln was managing all the way through the Civil War. And also prior to the Civil War, when he was desperately trying to put together a coalition against slavery, which let's remind, it's an all white electorate. It's a time when people don't even use the word racism because that was really kind of the only way that people thought about things. There was no point in having the word when everybody thought about things that way almost. I, and I guess I should say, you know, white people overwhelmingly, but you could find people of any race that would have what we would define as racist thoughts today, racist ideas. But he's trying in that environment to assemble an anti-slavery coalition, and that required him to reach out to all different kinds. Right. And I, we should say, I, I just had a conversation with Yasha Monk about this recently, but like, um, I understand why we use the shorthand white when describing white people in the 19th century, but who qualified as an actual white person was a much more contested thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and 
you know, the Irish and the Italians who came off the boat, you know, didn't, never mind the, the Goldbergs, they didn't immediately get welcomed into the white country clubs, right? There's, a, there's all sorts of other things going on. Yeah, and it was partly about religion. I mean, that's part of my story, too, is that it was a time of know-nothingism. These groups that were known as know-nothings because they had these secret societies that if you asked them about it, they supposedly replied, I know nothing, like Sergeant Schultz. And I was going to say <laughs> Sergeant Schultz, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're dating I, ourselves. I give you exactly. We are. Like half the audience is like, who? What? What? Where? But in any case, um, saying I know nothing. And, but there were secret societies that were committed to keeping foreigners out of power and limiting the circumstances under which foreigners could vote. And that was anxiety about people from other countries, but it was especially anxiety about people of the wrong religion, people who were Catholic in an overwhelmingly Protestant country. And there were conspiracy theories surrounding this, that the Pope was going to control America through Catholic voters. Um, there were culture war battles over whose Bible should be introduced into the public schools, or perhaps there should be no Bible in the public schools. There were debates that feel very familiar today, and you're exactly right. It was a question of who was in, who was out, who gets to be included, who does not get to be included in the definition of America. And in fact, one of the creepiest things to me, or most remarkable, let me just say remarkable, that today to think about is that the nativists, the Protestants who were in favor of the native-born against the foreign-born, called themselves Americans, the American party. They imagined themselves to be a kind of new race of people, the Americans who were pretty much of uh, British descent and pretty much Protestant. And there might be a few exceptions around the side, but they weren't going to allow very many. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And I should also point out that it's a bit of a digression, but um, the, when you're talking about the crowded room and the waiting room for the White House that Frederick Douglass was in, um, some things are a bit more streamlined today, but that doesn't mean all we've made all that much progress because personally, I think the Biden administration's use of German shepherds to clear out that room um, is not 
the most desirable way to do it, but um, we'll leave that for another podcast. Wait a minute, you're, um, talking about the un, you're talking about the unintentional use of German Shepherds, are you not? This is, what are we talking about? Now who's being naive, Steve? Commander is following orders. True. I saw True. it on Fox. Okay. Commander oh, has been told okay, to do this. Okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, it's on Fox. It must be yeah, true. Steve Bannon says there are, there, are, there are no coincidences. What a coincidence. I just said the same thing. No. Just <laughs> All right. So tell me about Lincoln. Why did Lincoln take so long to, to leave the party that I would like to come back in many ways, the Whig party? Um, mm-hmm. um, I am, I'm, I'm a decided, I'm, I've become of a decidedly Whiggish bent in many ways in recent years, um, uh, which sort of talks about, which, which speaks to the reason why this podcast is called The Remnant. He, you write that Lincoln remained a Whig and something more than loyalty kept him so. He declined to join the new party because as Illinois, organ, Illinois organizers were called abolitionists, widely seen as extremists. But you also point out that Lincoln in 1854 in his Peoria speech he objected to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He criticized popular so- sovereignty in the context of slavery. Um, was Lincoln's reluctance to join the Republican Party purely political, or was there something else going on there? I think there were. There, it was. Uh, there's a, a number of things going on there. You're, you're referring to one of my 16 meetings where he uh, comes into kind of a friendship and a political partnership with Owen Lovejoy, who was an anti-slavery preacher whose brother had been killed by a pro-slavery mob for things he'd written in a newspaper about slavery. Um, and so Owen Lovejoy had this kind of fire about him, this passion about him, and became one of the organizers of the Republican Party of Illinois in 1854, within months of the foundation of the Republican Party, invited Lincoln to join in October of 1854. And Lincoln not only declined, but according to one account, made sure that he was out of town the next day when they had their organizing convention. Um, there's another account that maybe he just had a court case out of town. But in any case, he blew them off. He didn't want to be around them. And that seems to have been, I mean, partly political in the sense of, I don't want to be seen with these dangerous sounding guys. And partly practical or pragmatic, to use that other word, he's thinking about what is the the, the thing that is wisest for me to do that I can get away with the best, but also partly in terms of, of principle. He was a believer in the rule of law, a believer in the Constitution, a believer that, that actually the rule of law was the only thing that, that keeps us from chaos. And he felt that abolitionists went a little too far toward defying laws, pro-slavery laws, like the fugitive slave law, which had been passed a few years earlier. Um, Lincoln disapproved of the fugitive slave law, considered it excruciating, but was of the viewpoint that it should be enforced simply because it was the law until something else could be done. Um, This raises questions, yeah, about what were his ultimate beliefs and why were the uh, abolitionists considered so radical? Um, Some of them were considered radical, as we mentioned earlier, because they defied the legitimacy of the Constitution. They wanted to break up the Union before the Confederates wanted to break up the Union. They, there was a slogan, no union with slaveholders. They would have been happy, a few, this is a small group of people, would have been happy for New England to break off and be its own uh, country and not attached to slavery. Um, there were other people who were labeled abolitionists who didn't go to that extent, but they defied the fugitive slave law. They helped people to escape from slavery. Owen Lovejoy was such a person. Uh, people who had fled from the South would come through Illinois on the Underground Railroad and sometimes stay at his house in Princeton, Illinois, on the way to Canada or wherever they might possibly find shelter. He was even put on trial for this at one point. And his defense was, I do not deny that a black woman stayed in my house for a few days, but who can prove really that she was enslaved? And the jury uh, acquitted him. So he's a remarkable figure. Um, but Lincoln was just not sure that they agreed sufficiently on the proper legal and political approach to slavery. And I think that uh, a little bit of an evolution took place in the course of that chapter, in the course of his relationship with people like Owen Lovejoy, in that Lincoln's political party, the party that you wish could come back, the Whigs, was falling apart. Whigs were abandoning the party to become Republicans. Whigs were abandoning the party to become nativists. 
Some of the Whigs who remained were nativists, which horrified Lincoln because he thought the nativists were wrong essentially about everything. And so his own party is falling apart. He's not sure about joining this new party because he's, he's a politician. He wants to win. He wants to succeed. He wants to make a difference in the world. He's not sure that they can make a difference in the world. But by a couple years later, uh, 1856, really maybe a year and a half later, he has effectively joined the Republicans. And when a group of Republican newspaper editors uh, got together in 1856 in Decatur, Illinois, to try to chart their way in Illinois for the very important state elections that were coming up, one politician showed up with the newspaper editors, and it was Abraham Lincoln, who helped them to shape a party platform that he thought would be practical and that he thought would win support and that would not stand for things that he had a problem with. So he um, was not entirely sure about the Republican Party at the beginning, but he got in there and tried to bend it a little bit toward his way of thinking. I read once, and I wish I could find it, that if you go back and you look at the, and I don't know if this is covered in the book, um, but um, if, if, if you go back and you read the local coverage of some of the Stephen Douglas debates, I mean, the, the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the pro-South newspapers would write how Douglas so humiliated Lincoln that he was left a quivering mass begging for mercy upon the stage. And the pro-Lincoln newspapers would say, Lincoln so bested Douglas that 12 men had to restrain him from his his incensed rage at being so humiliated and all this kind of stuff. And I always bring this up when the the issue of uh, media bias comes up, which is that Media bias is, is both more interesting and less interesting than most of the people who talk about it, but it's not new, <laughs> right? And true, it, true. And, um, and I'm not, this is not going to get into an NPR thing, but I'm just kind of wondering, first of all, did you, when you go and you look at some of the historical stuff, do you, how much of a discounting do you have to do about the journalistic sources that you're looking at when you're reading about this stuff? Oh, um, you have to discount them some. And in some cases, you are helped because uh, given the, with the example that you give, there would be commentary exactly as you describe, but they would then frequently print the transcript of the debate or a large part of the transcript of the debate. And so you could get firsthand information, um, which was helpful given the, the bias along the way. And you could also ask questions like, was there some firsthand reporting done in this story? Is it all commentary from a distance? Um, and the other thing is, oh, they would print transcripts of the debates or speeches in the paper. And they would sometimes even print um, someone's speech to say, you can see for yourself how horrible and deluded they are. And so you would get actually inf- interesting information even in a partisan paper. And the other thing that the partisan press did um, was it would reveal a lot about itself and its own anxieties. One of my favorite things to realize is a reason why Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, was so famous. Part of it was because of his books, part of it was because of his speeches, and part of it was because of pro-slavery newspapers and conservative or whatever we want to call them newspapers in the terms of that time, because they would write about Frederick Douglass all the time, continuously talk about Frederick Douglass, as being the person who was secretly directing the Republicans, because you can understand the, you know, the racism behind that attack. You can understand why it would work to say, to smear uh, Republicans by saying they're following this black man's agenda. Um, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Senator Stephen A. Douglas brings up Fred Douglas, as he calls him, 20 different times to continuously say Lincoln is doing what, what this black man tells him to do. He was the George Soros of his age. Yeah, George Soros. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you think about somebody like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, she's on MSNBC a lot, but it might be that she's on Fox News more uh, because I mean, she, she is a, a concern or was for a while like a large concern of, of, of Fox News. And we, I mean, we could go through and, and give lots of examples of this. You know, I think. Um, when I was a little bit younger and living in New York City, Al Sharpton was in the newspapers all the time. And I 
you know, would wager that, that some of the attention paid to Sharpton was about people hating Sharpton. And so they wanted to read about this person that they hated. Um, and so you can, you can see lots of examples of this today. What I'm saying, I guess, is that the partisan newspapers would still provide an, an amount of credible basic facts, which is helpful. I mean, that's really quite cool in a way to say, this person is awful and I'm going to give you his entire speech so that you can see for yourself. Um, and, and you would also, from the partisanship itself, learn about the motivations and anxieties of the editors and in some cases, their readers. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I don't want to get into a media bias thing, but the reason why I always bring up that anecdote about the coverage of those debates is that, you know, America took this weird turn in post-World War II, early 1950s, where we became obsessed with this idea that begins with the telegraph and then with the radio, that electronic media can be completely objective. And we became obsessed with a quote unquote objective media. But if you look at Europe, they never really had that same transformation. And so like, if you look at the London papers, you know, the, the times is sort of Tory and the guardian is sort of Bolshevik and the telegraph is somewhere in the middle and all kinds of, you know, where they're coming from. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad newspapers. It just means that you have a little more information about why they're picking this story or why they're focusing on that story, why they're ignoring this other story, or why they're telling this person's version of it rather than that person's version of it. And this is one of the reasons why I have a sympathy in my heart for good opinion journalism, because good opinion journalism is honest with the reader. It says, hey, this is where I'm coming from. I'm going to make these three arguments. I'm going to try and deal with the best arguments of the other side. I'm going to use facts that we can all agree on, blah, 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 blah. And, and there's an honesty that comes from it. And I think, again, I think the partisan newspapers of the 1860s were probably way too partisan, <laughs> but that approach of leveling with readers a little bit more or the audience a little bit more about where you're coming from, I think th we lost something also in American journalism with that. Aren't, aren't you associated with some kind of publication that does just that sort of opinion journalism? I'm trying to bring forth and see if I can remember the name of it to see if I can, you know, learn it, remember it with dispatch as quickly as possible, whatever the name. Uh, might be. I, I am indeed. Um, and you know, we, 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 we're, we're honest that we're center right and all of that kind of stuff. And we think that's a useful thing to be honest about the fact that we're center right. And we have an opinion side and we have a news side and we care about facts on both and we don't carry water for people, but like, Anyway, I, I wasn't trying to bait you into a big media no, bias conversation. No, I, I, I know, I, that... I, know, I, I know but I'm, I'm happy to do it. And I, I, appreciate, I appreciate what you're saying. I really like an article by somebody who comes in with a point of view or a dark suspicion of something or, or anger about something or whatever, so long as they make an honest interrogation of it, if they interrogate their own thoughts and ideas, if they do give me enough information along the way that I can make up my own mind, if they do the modern equivalent of, giving me the transcript of the speech so that I can see for myself how terrible it is, if in fact I even think that it is, that it's terrible. Um, if they are, as you know, as a television network, for example, giving me like one little snippet um, of something that, that gives a mistaken impression, um, and I, I, could, I could give millions of examples of this. Some of them are not even like necessarily partisan. I'm remembering after Hurricane Katrina, uh, watching CNN in horror, the destruction of New Orleans, and they had an overhead view of a house on fire. And they spent so much time showing this house on fire that I thought that all of New Orleans above the waterline burned, when in reality it was just a house on fire that they focused on continuously. And, you know, I, if I watch Fox News, and it is on when I'm doing the show in the mornings, by the way, they've got cable TV on in there, there have been phases where they're again and again and again and again and again showing people trying to climb the border fence, which gives me an impression of like millions of people trying to cross. And certainly a lot of people are trying to cross, but I get the wrong, I get the, the wrong idea, the wrong perspective. Um, there uh, are things about both Trump and Biden where you pick a clip of them doing something incredibly stupid. And then someone says, see, he's obviously insane. He's obviously senile or whatever. And that I think is a problem where you have, uh, and that's where it becomes propaganda, where you're not giving the public enough information to make up their own mind. And you're not being intellectually honest about what you're presenting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I try really hard not to talk about 
the media bias stuff anymore because it's such. Oh, an we obsession. can go on. We can um, go on. Let's no, just no, 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 let's no, just conclude I, that what you guys are doing is good. Thank you very much. Uh, the uh, the argument, um, the example I always use because like people want to talk about ideological bias, and I think ideological bias is a thing, right? Um, I I've been known in it at various points in the past to accuse NPR of it, and I think it does exist from time to time. NPR, but the thing that's interesting to me. Or I think like, like people that gets left out is that there are a lot of other kinds of bias too. And the example I always, the story I always tell was years ago when Howard Kurtz was still at CNN um, and before his long journey. And, um, uh, and he would have me on to argue with about liberal media bias. He would say how crazy I am for thinking it exists and all that kind of stuff. And now he's lapped me several times. Um, but I remember we were about to have a panel discussion about something, you know, about media this or media that. And, and again, this had to be 2002 or something like that. And they said, hold on, we got breaking news. And they cut to essentially live footage of, I believe it was a purse snatching in the parking lot of like a Kroger in Indianapolis. And it was just good video, right? Back then, this yeah. was back when like, like that was not shocking. That was still kind of shocking video to have that kind of video or whatever. And they're just, they're interrupting the show. We're going to have this highfalutin talk about like liberal media bias because good video, the bias towards video is greater than any of these other ideological things, right? I mean, if you get a, a great story about teenagers running wild or cheerleaders doing crazy things, um, it's going to beat out the Federal Reserve nine times out of yeah. 10, you know, because yeah. that's a bias too, you know? I, I agree with you. Um, and fortunately, in Lincoln's time, there was not quite that same problem with video. Um, and I, in fact, I think about this sometimes. <laughs> when you look at Lincoln's speeches, it doesn't, they, they, the speeches themselves do not have like a lot of like personal stories necessarily or any of those things that grab your emotions the way the purse snatching in the Kroger parking lot would. He was trying to reason with people and work his way through the logic for or against whatever he was talking about. It's remarkable that people stood and listened to him for three hours at a time. Well, and also, didn't the Gettysburg Address get just panned? Like, first of all, for being too short, because it was, but... No, no, I think there, there are a lot of legends around the Gettysburg Address. Uh, for example, that it was written, you know, quickly on the back of an envelope. In fact, Lincoln did multiple drafts, thought about it a lot, and it was a distillation of themes he'd been playing with in speeches for at least nine years. Um, and and the, the idea that it was criticized or not liked, I think, uh, has proven not to be particularly true. Is that right? Okay. People thought it was a lovely little, lovely little speech. It is true that Edward Everett, uh, prior to that, gave a speech, yes, prior to that, gave a speech of like three uh, hours, two or three hours, recounting the entire history of the battle. It was like a CBS Reports documentary or whatever on the, uh, the entire Battle of Gettysburg. And Lincoln just had these few words. Uh, I don't know that anybody heard that and thought, oh, this is the greatest speech in American history and children will be reciting this for generations afterward. But my understanding is it was reasonably well received. Huh. That's good to know. Um, the, uh, um, I'm no longer a Gettysburg Address truther. Um, okay. So uh, is there any evidence then um, that if Everett had kept it short, the Gettysburg Address might have been longer? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a great, that's a great question. But Lincoln, Lincoln had a plan for what he wanted to say. Um, and it was a distillation of other things. One of the things that I, I discovered, I mean, this is known to Lincoln scholars, it was new to me, is that in the couple months before he gave the Gettysburg Address, he had his meeting we were discussing with Frederick Douglass. And Douglass was saying, you're not going far enough toward equality. And Lincoln was saying, well, my hands are a little tied here because of politics. I can only go so far. And that really, if Lincoln is taking a moral approach, what he just said about political reality is a reasonable thing to say because it's politics. But then the next step is, if you were doing the wrong thing because of politics, 
that creates an obligation to try to change the political circumstances so that you can do a better thing. And Lincoln, within a few weeks after that, um, was invited to give an address at Springfield, Illinois, where he had uh, you know, come up in his political career and the state in many ways had turned against him. A lot of people didn't like the Emancipation Proclamation. His party had lost control of the legislature. There were people calling for a negotiated peace. There was a lot of anger. Um, and Lincoln could not come to give the, give the speech, but he wrote a letter and sent it to his friend to read aloud to the crowd. And he said, I have but one piece of advice. Read it very slowly. And in this letter, which is about five times longer than the Gettysburg Address, it's like 1,500 words instead of a little less than 300, um, he reasons with the crowd. And he's acknowledging that he's talking to just a fundamentally racist crowd that is against emancipation and everything else. But he's saying, let me explain to you why what I am doing is in your interests. Because Lincoln understood that people believed that people acted out of self-interest and he would try to engage that in a higher cause. And he says, and of course we're going to use archaic language here. He talked about the Negro, black people. He said, to be frank, you disagree with me about the Negro. Um, I think that all men should be free and seems like you may think something different. But let me tell you why it's good that we are freeing men from bondage and they're enlisting in the Union Army. You say that you, uh, do not will, you are not willing to fight in the Army to free black people. Fine. Some of them seem to be willing to fight for you. Now, you know, never, no, but no, no, no matter your hypocrisy, um, it is black men doing the work that white men otherwise would have to do. And they are literally right now helping us win battles and win the war. And therefore, a measure of equality is in your interests, even if you don't agree in principle with the idea. Uh, consider your interests. What I am doing is in your interest. What they are doing is in your interest. And in a way, this speech is a longer, rougher, more raw, more directly political version of the Gettysburg Address, which Lincoln gave then a number of weeks after that at the dedication of the cemetery in, in, in Gettysburg. Um, the Gettysburg Address is the elevated, all men are created equal, just about makes you cry, you know, beautiful statement of American purpose. And the earlier draft, the letter he sent to Springfield, Illinois, to be read aloud to that crowd, is the rougher, raw political uh, statement that tells you what the war was really all about. Sort of the liner notes of the Gettysburg Address. Yes. That's interesting. So this is actually a good segue um, in our final minutes here um, to bring it up to contemporary days. You said that Lincoln fundamentally believed that politics was about appealing to people's self-interest, that people were self-interested. I have my, I have my sympathies and my doubts about that uh, in terms of today's politics, it feels to me like in today's politics, on both sides to one extent or another, probably more acutely and more obviously given the events of the last week with the speaker stuff, there is this understanding of politics as we don't care about policy, we care about owning the other side, about punishing the other side, about not working with the other side, a uh, lot of symbolic, call it culture war if you want, um, stuff that is all about, you know, Republican Party essentially runs to say we're not Democrats right now. And Democratic Party basically runs to say we're not MAGA Republicans. And there's not a lot of, as a think tank guy, there's not a lot of policy stuff there. There are not a lot of issues there. It is basically just signaling and tribalism and that kind of thing. And, you know, the question is that I'm sure you get a lot on, on the book tour is what can we learn from Lincoln about his time that would help us for today? And is, 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 is appealing to people's self-interest today in the way that Lincoln did or to their ideals the way that Lincoln did? Do you think there's still room for that in American politics? I'm not talking about speaking to the people who already agree with you. I'm talking about winning people over who don't agree with you. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely I completely hear you. And that is one of the problems that got me thinking in the terms that I did as I as I wrote this book. I don't know that it was fully in my mind at the beginning, but as I continued covering events and writing, it was more and more on my mind. Um, I think that there is an insight here because uh, Lincoln was not necessarily trying to get people to change their minds um, about fundamental things that they believed. And you can understand how hard that would be from looking around now. I mean, people get frustrated that they want to uh, persuade their uncle who likes Donald Trump over Thanksgiving dinner to change his mind about Donald Trump. And that's just not going to happen because there was a long process of, of their uncle having that particular kind of politics. But maybe you can find something that you can deal with your uncle on. And there are people attempting that kind of politics right now. And it even relates to policy. I'll give an example of the current administration uh, and I'm not saying that what they're doing is good or bad, but I'm giving it as an example of something that they are doing that is explicitly this kind of politics. Democrats, when they controlled both houses of Congress, passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included a bunch of subsidies to uh, provide a clean energy transition, going from fossil fuels over to wind and solar and, and, and whatever else, water power and, and everything else. And that involves things like electric car batteries and a variety of other things. And uh, you now have the administration, for better or worse, eager and supportive of the idea that a lot of the jobs created by those industries, because there are a lot of jobs, should be in red states, which would give people in red states a stake in this new economy that uh, many voters uh, may have some concerns about and wonder if it's practical, whether it makes any sense or whether it's really in their interest or whether it's kind of a plot to control them. Um, and uh, that would be an example of trying to include everybody, if you want to put it positively. If you're cynical about this, maybe you would say it's you know some, somehow trying to buy people off or buy off uh, voters in the way that, that Newt Gingrich used to feel about a lot of kind of democratic social programs and so forth. Um, but however you feel about it, I think it is an example of outreach to the interests of people who may have a different ideology. Um, and I guess we'll find out over time if that, if that, if that works. Um, I, I'm thinking also as you're talking, uh, about the problem that you run into if, you know, politics is purely performative which was the frustration you're describing, if it's truly just about owning the other side. We just had this kind of titanic uh, implosion of the House Republicans, which I guess was Matt Gates owning the Speaker of the House of Representatives of his own party. Um, but we are now mystified as to what policy objective Matt Gates would have had, if any, what policy would possibly result from this, if any, or if, in fact, there are essential things to the operation of the country that now won't get done. It's a complete mystery because something has been uh, missed here. Lincoln understood that in order to succeed, he did not have to persuade everybody to agree with him. If it was impossible to agree on something like slavery and the Constitution was at stake, it turns out he was willing to fight the bloodiest war in the history of the United States to support the Constitution. Uh, against people who had a different view of things, to say the least. Um, but he understood you did need a coalition on your side that was large enough to be a majority. Republicans needed, in order to uh, comfortably and effectively control the House of Representatives in this current term, Republicans needed to run a certain kind of campaign in 2022 that would get the big majority for them that they reasonably could have expected, given that it was a midterm election and all the other political factors and fundamentals being what they were. They didn't get that majority because, at least in part, of the kind of candidates they ran and the kind of campaign that they ran and the way that they did in uh, suburban areas that used to be very comfortably Republican. And so they had a much smaller majority. And then Kevin McCarthy lost his majority entirely, which he needed to keep and was going to be extraordinarily hard for him in any case. And now Matt Gates gets to call the shots for a day. And Matt Gates has nothing remotely close to a majority. Apparently he's got eight. Um, and no one is going to get out of that situation until they assemble a functioning majority at the House of Representatives. 
I, maybe you know, I have no idea how they're going to do that. I don't know if there's a handful of Republicans who are going to work with Democrats, as improbable as that would seem, if there is some way that Jim Jordan becomes Speaker of the House, which seems kind of like, I would think there's going to be a lot of more moderate Republicans who'd be very uncomfortable with that. I don't know what the way out is, but the side that is going to prevail is the side that can reach out to people who are different than them and create a functioning majority, a functioning majority coalition. So what you're saying is we're doomed. <laughs> Thank you. That's uh, no, a nice I, summary. I, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not entirely joking. I, I agree with you. I mean, it's it's very it's very easy, and it's the only right answer to say I have no idea how this is going to play out, right? Because we have no idea how it's going to play out. But part of the problem, and this is this is something that Yuval Levin and I and, and some others have been writing about a lot, is both parties operate on this assumption that they are just on the cusp of being the majority party, but that the need in order to win an election, they therefore don't need to reach out to people beyond their coalition. All they need to do is intensify the turnout of the people already in it who may, you know, the low propensity voters already in their coalition, just turn up the gain on their turnout a little bit and they'll win. And the problem is, is that both parties think that they are rightful majority parties, but they both act, operate as if they're minority parties. And the second they get in power, they think we're not going to last here very long. So let's swing for the fences and do as much as we can, which invites the backlash that gets the other party in power for a change election. And then they repeat it. And, you know, I mean, like we've been in Washington for a long time now. It used to be really remarkable for the House of Representatives to switch parties, switch parties. It used to be, you know, like the pendulum swinging on the Senate was a big deal. Pendulum swinging on the White House was a big deal. But each party thinks that it's impossible for them to be a 60 percent coalition. So all they want to do is, is do the sort of Ted Cruz, Donald Trump strategy or the Barack Obama, frankly, strategy from 2008 of turn up the gain on their own side. And that'll be the answer to it. And that is very anti-political. If you don't think it's possible for you to win over anybody above 50, you know, 50% of the vote, there's just not a lot of persuasion going on. There's a lot of exhortation of your own side to just to turn out more. And that creates, I think, a lot of the dysfunction that we've got right now. Well, I think the, the party that is better at reaching out to the other side and broadening their coalition at least a little bit is the party that would be better positioned in 2024. I think about this uh, a lot. Democrats have a majority in the United States Senate, um, and they're going to lose it unless they manage to do well in about a half dozen fairly conservative or purplish kind of states ranging from West Virginia around to about Arizona. Um, that where, where Donald Trump has done well or even won the state or won the state hugely. Bigly. Bigly, thank you. Bigly, I appreciate that correction. Democrats are going to need to do well in those states. And in some cases, we'll be relying on senators like Joe Manchin, if he doesn't run for president, that progressives just loathe. But they really need this person that they just loathe to keep West Virginia on their side if Manchin decides to, to do that. Um, th that requires them to build a larger coalition. Republicans have kind of a flip side version of this. I guess I would think in terms of traditionally Republican suburbs that have gone bluer and bluer. This is even true of my hometown of Carmel, Indiana, which used to be like the most Republican town in the state of Indiana. And there are many, many, I forget if the whole city voted for Joe Biden, but there are many, many blue districts of it now. And um, they, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, there, there's been a tremendous flip. And uh, if suburban voters who have some history of voting Republican, who are open to being Republicans, uh, think that Republicans are too extreme, as they clearly did think in the last several elections, Republicans are going to have trouble having a broad enough coalition to do very well in 2024. I think for either side, it's a coalition game in this, this next election. Oh, I think you're right. Which I think the problem is, is that it's all negative coalitions. It's all who can convince people to hate the other party more rather than actually the Aristotelian sense of politics, which is you persuade people to join your coalition because it's in your interest. We live in this era of negative 
polarization, you know, I, I can actually show yeah. it to you. I've quoted it many times on your show. I got this drawing on the wall. It's an old New Yorker cartoon. Uh, my wife had blown up for me for my birthday a few years ago. And it's got two dogs having cocktails at a bar in Manhattan and wearing nice suits. And one dog says to the other, it's not enough that, that we succeed. Cats must also fail. And the cats must also fail is the pitch of American politics right now. But. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they, people don't even do the first part anymore. They're like, it's, 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 it's not necessary That's for right. us to succeed so long as the cats fail. That's right. As long as we own the cats. We're winning, right? That's that's the 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 Trumpian Gatesian formulation. Steve Inskeep, thank, I wish we could go on, but um, I actually have to hit the road, and um, it was great talking to you. I hope you'll come back, and um, and do not hector anybody about me no longer being in the house boy at NPR. It is fine. Uh, I'm 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 there to be break glass when needed. Don't worry about it. The occasion will come, whether I raise it or not. The occasion will come. We'll have you <laughs> back on. You've always been great. People love you. Thank you, sir. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.